Welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I am your host, Jeff Z. So glad to have you with us today. We are now in season three, looking at the nature of stress. We're going to dive into this ancient system and the way it works and plays out in our lives and talk with some truly amazing people who have knowledge and insights to help us find our way through the dance of life and the dance of stress that will have heart and truth and love in them. It's going to be amazing, I promise. Let's do this. Enjoy. Here we go. Zamina Iqbal, welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I'm really glad to have you on the show today. Thank you for having me. I'm really flattered that you asked. Yeah, I, I did ask, and I had a very particular reason I asked and wanted to have you on the show today. I know you as an artist and a poet and a musician, and one of the values that I've seen you express in your, your creative work is a value for beauty. And it might seem a little yeah. unorthodox or counterintuitive for a season dedicated to a conversation about stress, to have a conversation about beauty and art. But I do think it's related, and I do think in time that will show itself in the show. But I wanted to, again, welcome you so much. Thank you for being here. Glad to have you here. Thank you again. And and just give you a chance to start talking about beauty. And one of the places I think that's really clearly written is in, is in the beginning of your poetry book, A Life Bending, and give you a chance to sh- maybe share that passage, and then we can build on the conversation from there. How does that sound? Yeah, that sounds perfect. So actually that passage, it's funny because I guess this journey of pursuing beauty as a virtue started at quite a young age. And I had notes on what this ended up evolving into this passage from when I was a teenager. And it just kind of, I don't really know where it came from, but I was just really obsessed with beauty being more than merely aesthetic. Um, and being something that had this higher transcendental quality to it. And at that age, I wasn't really able to articulate in the way that I have just through time and observation and contemplation. But this is kind of my, my ethos on beauty and how I approach life and art. So it, it goes as follows. The law of beauty is the expansion of life. Beauty and its form in art is the expansion of knowledge and thus the evolution of life. The need to create, the second hunger of humanity, the all-consuming ache of unbearable inspiration. All are the growing pains of the soul. Beauty as it appears in art can be tragic, can be ugly, if it transports the observer to a place of ineffable understanding an understanding that transforms the soul. But most surely, beauty is beyond ornament, beyond device, and even within its forms of letters and lines, beyond language. So that's it. Oh, I love that. (laughs) And I love knowing the backstory of it. I love knowing that um, some part in your early development, you had a, a feeling, maybe that's the ineffable. Exactly. It just became a bit of an obsession and... It really is perfused in and around everything that I do. And it's a, it's a guiding, it's definitely a a guiding um, force in my life. 
How does uh, a virtue or an ineffable quality become guiding for you? Like, how does that ethos show up in your art and your creation and your work? So I just knew that <laughs> that beauty was more than its aesthetic value. It was more than appearance. And that was that ineffable feeling that I had as a teenager. And how I would put it, and these lines are, I just read that in um, in the passage, but to elaborate, what kind of drove me to this kind of curiosity was this feeling of the unbearable ache of inspiration is how I put it. So if you've ever felt so inspired so creative, or you have observed, heard, experienced the work of art that has just caused almost this chasm within you. And it, there's a physical, it, there's a physical manifestation of that experience of inspiration in the body. And I call it an unbearable ache. It like pushes you to this precipice. And um, it's almost agonizing. There's this pain to it. And I experienced this so much as a teenager and would continue to experience this so much into my adult life. And the only way I could categorize this feeling was that it was a state of beauty. It was a state of experiencing beauty. And I thought to myself, well, surely if something is just aesthetic, if something just looks pleasing to the eye, it wouldn't create this kind of um, profundity of emotion within oneself, you know? And that's what, how I came to understand beauty as a, a virtue. And in the beginning lines of that passage, I talk about how life seeks to expand and it seeks to grow. So beautiful humans seek to mate with, on, with, with one another. Beautiful flowers seek to be pollinated healthy, virile animals seek to, you know, to copulate, you know? And I thought that beauty and art, beauty in art was a kind of uh, a near to that. So when you experience beautiful art and you are confronted with that feeling, that unbearable ache of inspiration, it's as if you've become wiser, like you believe that you've experienced or know something more than you knew before, but is beyond language. That's the ineffable quality of it, right? And so that's the expansion of knowledge, and that is the transcendental expansion of, of life. So you have the material expansion of life, and then you have this transcendental ex, um, expansion of life as um, facilitated through art and beauty. You're doing an amazing job describing that. And I'm, I'm curious about the ache and the pain and the way you found mm -hmm. in the trust of your deep self as a young person to, to somehow connect the condition of longing and desire um, with the, with these yeah. higher arts, with these, with these expressions. And, and so I'm moved by that. I'm moved listening and, and learning about that. One of the things that I'm curious about in your ethos and in your relationship with beauty as it evolved from being an adolescent into a young woman, how did that shape the way you looked at 
I'll just go towards it a little bit, but towards adversity or towards the process of becoming or towards the development of your, of your personhood. One of the tensions I think that is evident in all of my art, whether it's my music, my writing, my mixed media, is this tension between beauty and sorrow, suffering and, you know, ecstatic longing. And I think there are, the relationship is really interesting. And once again, I have to go back to, to my youth because this is really kind of our childhoods is where the seeds of what kind of propels us into the future are planted. So when I was younger, I really loved Russian literature. I read a lot of Tolstoy and Gogol and Pushkin and Turgenev and something that really like, I guess I was captivated by it was the intrinsic suffering that was in these novels. And this was what I found interesting too about beauty is that beauty, you can find beauty in, in sadness, you can find beauty in the ugly, um, because I don't think anyone is reading Fathers and Sons and just saying it's sad, they're saying it's a beautiful novel in spite of the sadness, or maybe something, um, a work of art that someone, most people would know, Sophie's Choice. You know, you're not watching Sophie's Choice and saying, this is just a sad movie. You're saying, there, this is a beautiful movie. Mm-hmm. And why? Because in spite of the sadness, in spite of the suffering depicted in this work of art, it's illuminating something uh, really so intrinsic in the human condition. And to have that illuminated in such an artistic way, it's almost like a miracle. And it's that expansion of knowledge again, as facilitated through art and beauty, in spite of the sadness, in spite of the suffering. Um, and it's illuminating a truth that suffering is, is part of life. Um, and so this is what I came to understand as an adult and navigating the chaotic world, uh, the world of uncertainty, is that beauty is what's created in this space known as the in spite of. So in spite of working your nine to five, in spite of challenging relationships, in spite of, you know, coming in and out of money or just, you know, the challenges we all experience, in spite of all that, you come home and you write a poem or you come home and you sing a song or you come home and you paint a picture in spite of all that. And I think that that is um, an intrinsic quality of beauty, that it's made in the space known as the in spite of. <laughs> That's great. I love that. I love the, I love the in spite of, I love, I love the, the way art is a, a chance to, to deal with that. And um, one of the things I've, curious about in having this interview and as I was thinking about it was, you know, I see you as a generation younger than me. And so I was curious about your generational identity, but you mentioned Russian literature. You, you know, I know you've spent time in Japan. You've studied these um, wisdom traditions and these poetic and these art traditions across time. And so I was curious of how you in a way experience 2022, given your reach both musically into more ancient traditions of the violin and, and, you know, across centuries with poetic and literary traditions. And um, so I'm going to place that 
to you with, um, you know, take that how you want and let me hear what you think. How I'm experiencing the modern world while also ex- um, exploring these more traditional forms of yes. art. This is also um, one of the reasons why I'm just so adamant of really articulating through words um, why beauty is important as a virtue whether I do that through social media or through my writing um, or just in conversation about my art with others, I really try to extrapolate a little bit about what beauty really is because, um, you know, in this postmodernist world, everything in art and culture is relative nowadays, which is great to a certain extent. And this is, this is the thing is everything is true to a certain degree, you know? We're all in different shades of truth. And so, yeah, everything is relative to a certain degree. But then, you know, if we go beyond just the mundane, there's, I believe that there's something beyond that. And I see that people my age, whether, uh, you know, I just turned 30 or people my age or younger are really hungry for meaning and purpose. I think I heard someone put it once that we have a crisis of meaning. And I really believe that. And I think this sense of just relativity, like there is no sense, there is no true beauty, there's no true virtue, there's no such thing as there's no way to really define what what a virtuous life could look like. It has really confused so many people. And you see this in our art, a lot of art today. You know, actually, I was visiting London back in October there to do some worked with some artists and I went to the Tate, which is a very well-known modern art gallery. And I saw the Duchamp urinal. If, if, you, if you know Duchamp and you know his urinal, it's like the postmodernist work of art. And it's just a urinal put in a, <laughs> in a glass box. And isn't that just so indicative? It's, it's a mockery. It's supposed to make be a mockery of art. And that piece of art for its own sake, I think is important, but it kind of uh, led to a whole kind of generation and culture of art being a mockery, a mockery of religion, a mockery of spirituality, a mockery of beauty. And um, everything is ironical and everything is hyper cerebral. And we've lost touch with the intelligence of the heart, the intelligence of the, of the feeling self and the, the intelligence of the soul. And, um, when we're too cerebral and when we're in this kind of playing these ironical kind of intellectual gymnastics with our art, I think we, we get too muddied in the material and we lose sense of the things that actually give our life meaning, which is beyond that, the, the sacred and beyond the, beyond the mundane. Um, so yeah, I see that People are always hungry for beauty. This is the thing, because I talk to so many people about it. Obviously, it's a passion project of mine, a life, a life's worth of a, a life's project, basically. But And people are so um, intrigued. We, they want to know more. And I, I think that's so telling. It is telling. And I think if I hear you correctly, that... In terms of the question, your connection to the more classical or pre-postmodern value of, of beauty and art and expression, 
offers you something that maybe most, as you look around your generation, you don't, you see people hungry for, and yet you have, you have threads into that. You have channels at which you get, I would assume fed from, um, other artists, other poets, other musicians. Absolutely. I think a a big thing too, is that, you know, there's so much to pull from, like a modern, a lot of modern art is, influenced by our culture of consumerism so it's all about making things quickly it's all it's about um, replication and production but if you think about traditional forms of art it's all about attention awareness it would have taken so long to produce some of these works of art you know and i think what we're missing is that attention and that awareness we're so distracted with technology. And so what I love about more traditional, not that my art is, um, you know, classical in a sense, it's I would say fairly experimental, but I am pulling on traditional forms and ancestral forms of expression. And I think what that grants me is playing on that sense of awareness and attention that we've kind of been robbed of in our modern culture through technology and just through our fast-paced lifestyles and also how art is produced nowadays. Like as a musician, because music is, you know, most people can uh, uh, listen to music for free, Artists are expected to be turning out a track every month, every two weeks. You know, there's a, the relationship to art is very different. I want to circle back to this beauty and even suffering, help us expand knowledge. And I heard that outwardly, but I also heard that as a kind of inward knowledge of self when we encounter you know, sorrow, tragedy, and we find through art or through expression or, or reflection and meditation that the depth of beauty that's present, present even in suffering. And so I want to go a little bit more towards you. I really appreciate your sophistication of the movement of art and your place in it. And I see that as, I see that as rather mature. I don't have that kind of identity inside myself, but I don't identify as an artist or passion. I've been more in wellness and my passion project is stress. Mm. So we get to have a conversation (laughs) between two people who have different passion projects, but intersect in, I think, an interesting way to me. So I want to go back to you a little bit and your, your ethos and your art. Yeah. Did I ask a question yet? My relationship my relationship to my art and my own suffering basically. yeah the expansion of inward knowledge yeah and yeah and then maybe we can touch on some of your poetry too because there was definitely some qualities in your in your poetry that I wanted to name and and tie to your ethos yeah so I I think well actually let me talk a little bit about the writing and so I did live in Japan and I was playing in orchestras there, but one of the things that I kind of fell in love with was Zen philosophy and um, Zen writing. And I've always loved writing, but I just found myself really drawn to haiku. And it was, it wasn't so much the brevity of the poem, it was the simplistic language. Um, 
I felt like the simplistic plain language removed any kind of distraction. You know, I, I'm not so much about, even in my music, you might be able to hear that uh, it's not really ornamented. There's a lot of space, maybe even stark at times. And I, what I like about that is it creates this space for us to actually sit with the discomfort of whatever emotions are coming up. When I'm writing poetry, I actually am in a very different space than when I'm like making art or writing music. There is a real struggle and inner turmoil. Uh, And I believe that actually writing is one of the more torturous of all the art forms because it's trying to transcend language through language. And what I mean by trying to transcend language is that you're trying to get to something ineffable that is beyond kind of the the categorizing quality of language through the medium of language. So it's very paradoxical in that sense. So that's why I find haiku interesting because you're trying to strip away as much language as possible to be as succinct. And at the end of the day, what you're coming to is a meditation on a moment, on a feeling and hopefully that will inspire some sort of some sense of beauty in oneself, despite the the starkness of it all, the nakedness of it all. So what I came to realize is that the suffering is unavoidable, really, in life. The stress is unavoidable. The anxiety is unavoidable. What you need to do is allow that to galvanize you to create. And in my art, I don't try to, it's not an escapism at all for me. Like my art is not an escapism. It's it's to actually confront those stressors and that suffering and to continue to be inspired by that as an innate quality of what life is about, you know? And so therefore I appreciate it as I appreciate life. You know, that's that's perfectly said. I, I, I hear both the Zen and some writing you did on the fulfillment quality of letting each moment have its full expression and, mm-hmm. and dropping into being present with that. Yeah. yeah. So I, I definitely hear yeah. that and what you're saying. Um, I also hear appreciate you tying it into the language of stress because, you know, pain, pleasure, um, discomfort, adversity, being adaptive and that beautiful part of humans and the way we work at which we can collide energies at different levels in order to speak to something greater than the moment is is so profound. And I'm wondering if we could maybe turn to a couple of your poems, um, your haikus out of your book that speak to places where you had to confront yourself or confront a feeling in order to find the words for it. How's that sound to you? Yeah, absolutely. This was, when I was writing this book, this was actually one of the first haiku that I wrote. So, um, like, the famous masters of haiku would be Basho, Isa, Busan, and um, a lot, a lot of the uh, themes actually, well, of course, most of the themes are based upon nature. So like Zen philosophy is just, is hugely just a reflection on what is. So what is as in the natural passing of the seasons, the natural passing of our emotions in response to those seasons. It's 
appreciating the isness or the suchness of life. And it's also acknowledging that everything has its fulfillment and everything has um, a spirit or has a symbolic nature that we can we can reflect upon and be inspired by. So that being said, one of the things that you confront a lot in haiku is poems on like beetles or cockroaches or kind of creepy crawlies, right? So appreciating the things that are often unappreciated and then finding some kind of meditation or beauty in that, even if it's paradoxical. So I wrote one about, I guess, acknowledging the spiders that would crawl up into the corners of my bedroom in a honest pursuit of trying to seek warmth, but then it ultimately being their demise because there was no food up there. So, <laughs> you know, and I, I will read this, but I will say that haikus are, are not, it's not spoken, spoken word. They are meant to be read to oneself, but here we go. Seeking warmth above my bed the spider's graveyard. And so, I don't know, it's, a, it's this juxtaposition between intent and reality. The intent of the spider and the reality of what was happening. And as an observer, accepting it, not, not trying to um, impose my will upon the situation. You know, we're always trying to change and feel like we have control. Spider felt like it had control or knew it knew the intent or the outcome of its actions. And it's the same thing in our own life. Like we feel that we we like to pretend that we have ultimate control. Uh, and it actually our power comes in accepting the chaos and in and accepting the uncertainty that a lot of what we're going to confront in life is be completely out of our means of control. And so our control is the acceptance of that. It's that paradox. And so when you read the haiku, I like to imagine that the haiku is like a bead. And then the self is a piece of string. So if you have a string and then a bead that's strung along that string and it's pulling down on the two ends of the string. So it pulls down into space. The string is the self, the bead is the poem, and then the space is transcendental, ineffable knowledge and existence. So that poem is a moment that pulls down on our, on our awareness and allows us to sit in the space of knowledge and acceptance and existence. And it's very meditative in that sense. Yeah, I found reading your mostly haikus in your book, um, but there's some longer poems as well, like this one here, if I may. Yeah, absolutely. Two Sons. One mango, one fire. Spill morning's nectar down my browned arm. Sticky and free. These blue plains wetted still. I bathe in canopy. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I get to hear your poem back to yourself. But I found your poetry yeah. delicate and powerful at the same time. Mm, and I like, that, I like that blend where the language was delicate and I think you said light and spare and not too um, yeah. verbose or descriptive, bare enough to uh, then let a powerful image emerge. 
So I, I was I very much appreciate your book. It's very nice. A Life Bending. It's beautiful by Zamina. Thank you. So, and I appreciate your ethos. And I want to turn a little bit back to, and maybe enter the conversation a little bit more about what I think when it comes to beauty and stress and pressure um, mm-hmm. as we know it. Mm-hmm. And for me, part of stress is the dance between pressure and being pressureless, right? It's like the right dose of difficulty. Maybe it's the haiku form or maybe it's the fingering for you on a certain song or, you know, a certain demand yeah. and that we, we benefit from that expressing that demand. And I think one of the early places I started to understand this was I heard someone on a radio describing that we feel best when we're burning calories, not when we're accruing them. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that, like the positive feelings in our body and like, ah, yeah, that's actually really helpful scientific yeah. insight to explain experience, which is when we're generating and when we're giving of ourselves, when we're utilizing our being, our nature, um, that that somehow is fulfilling to us. And I think most people would call that purpose or maybe they would call that passion. I think in your case, this would be more mm-hmm. of the art side of, of that, that that somehow the longing and the pain to, to be or the longing and pains that come along with being transformed. So I'm always in the territory of stress. I'm always looking at the dance between where we have inlets and outlets as, as very, and it's very mechanical in a way. And it, I have a very evolutionary point of view and I'm, I appreciate transcendence, but I'm, I seek to deeply understand the materiality of, of nature um, and not mm-hmm. bypass it and be like, okay, we are biological. <laughs> I am biological. And, and what comes along mm-hmm. with the biological, right? And so these ancient traditions of art and philosophy and, and, um, and spirituality, I mean, they have really beautiful things and beautiful teachings and accrued wisdom in them. So I believe that we need to enter the territory of stress in our lives. I know I do. And I know there's certain ways I, I need to. And I know that when we exert our energy and attention on a demand, whether it's a poetry or, or learning the violin or um, studying a medicine or, or, or that that has intrinsic value for us. And, and, and yet we also, I know, and I know for myself, have this deep desire to, your word would be transcend. I would say go timeless or pressureless, you know, where we are not mm-hmm. defined by time in, in a way, in a normal way, mm-hmm. and where we can expand or um, drop down or let in. And, you know, medically mm-hmm. we could tie this to the nervous system and in different states in the, in the nervous system it's kind of cool. And then I'm kind of like, I'm not doing a podcast series on fully describing the nervous system of stress and uh, the hormones and the cortisol and the amygdala. That's kind of, it's not as fulfilling. I'm interested in stories. I'm interested in people. I'm interested in experiences with, with some science, but also myth and, and, and life wedded through that. So so when you bring beauty like you do, and I really appreciate, I, I didn't actually honestly expect it you would have as much to say. I didn't know. I was like, I kind of had this feeling, you know, and you said people respond to it. And I'm like, I'm one of those people I'm responding to. This is a really interesting narrative in that. And so 
I love the invitation to a deeper sense of the profound level of beauty. There's a philosophical thing and a, and, and a, an attitude you have towards life that I'm appreciating around making space for the holy, making space for the sacred. Mm. And I see you do that with a lot of embodiment, a lot of body mm. and sensuality and presence in lots of different levels. And, and I think that is nourishment for us more than the science in a way. And, and so in, in the desire to work with stress, I, I also recognize a profound need that we all have to transcend or go timeless or step out of it in order to step back into it. Or, or in, I think in the way you described it, relate between the two, relate the, the suffering with the beauty. And so um, I want to thank you so much for um, just laying that out. And I wanted to add my kind of like where I come from in relationship to it next to it. So you could, um, you know, riff on that a little bit, um, clarify things that I mistook, um, anything. Yeah. Like stress is so important. I think the, the important factor though is us choosing the stress that we're taking on. There's to a certain degree, we, we, we can't, there's just that uncertainty in life, but ultimately I think um, every individual, whether they want to acknowledge it or not, wants to be challenged and wants to feel like, you know, they've had to put effort into something that they've achieved in their life. And so the problem or not the problem, but kind of what this lifetime is, what we're meant to do is to choose our battle, so to speak, is choose the stress that we want to welcome into our life. And that is going to cause friction for us to grow, evolve, learn, however you want to put it. And so um, that anxiety of not knowing what stress we want to welcome into our life, I think that paralyzes people a little bit not knowing the stress that's going to, um, that they want to shoulder basically. And so that's what I think like things like haiku or any kind of art form really allows us is a moment of contemplation to reflect on, you know, if in a, if we're in a, in a Vedic sense, it would be our Dharma, like our life's path, what we want to pursue and what our purpose is in this lifetime. And, if we do something with meaning, if something is sacred to us, if a life path is sacred to us, then the stress that comes with that, the anxiety that comes with that, the challenges that comes with that, that's all meaningful. It's all for some kind of purpose, you know? It's very important to to make sure that not all the stress we deal with is just happening to us, but we're also kind of inviting it in. I agree. I think that's really well said. And I think that well, I, I want to invite a little bit more of your own personal knowledge around that, around how you craft your days using art and practices of beauty in order to cultivate your relationship with stress or, as you said, you know, the suffering or the um, unbearable. Yeah, the unbearable ache of yeah, inspiration. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is kind of a feeling that I chase. How do you how do you do that? Like, do you, do you wake up and start with poetry? Do you do you, do you pick up the fiddle? Do you, do you do fitness stuff? Like, what's your way of calling towards beauty 
developing mm-hmm. um, a deeper presence with the different sufferings or challenges or stresses? My go-to um, and what I start most mornings with is writing and reading. That's just what I like to fall into naturally. Um, I can be very uh, intellectual at times or and very like in the mind. And so once I write things out and channel things out or read and just get my dose of inspiration, that could be from anything. And I have many books that I'll just, I'll just see what I'm drawn to in that morning. Then I, I would like to embody it through music. And then that's getting out of the the intellectual mind, the judging mind, the classifying mind and embodying that inspiration. So the different forms of art are, um, have different utility for me, but ultimately all, all help me along the same path. So are you saying that you use different art modalities and different studies in order to help balance different parts of yourself? Yeah, I know. I feel that um, I've come to that just not through any kind of, uh, what's the word? Uh, like analysis. It just, it just happened that way. And I've noticed that writing gets me into a different headspace versus music gets me into a different headspace. And I might have times where I'm writing more than I'm playing violin. And there's, there's a, there's a certain kind of emotional state that comes along with that, that I've noticed. Like I said, I find that actually, uh, writing is a little bit more tumultuous for me. And so, um, I notice that when I'm writing, there's it, yeah, maybe it's a more of a state of ecstatic suffering than, than music. Music is more, uh, more sensual for me, I, I, I guess I would say. And that's just my own personal observations. And then I've just come to these things intuitively. Yeah, no, that's good. My meditation practice specifically involves starting by giving my mental stream of thoughts time to be experienced because I know that if I try to go past it without giving it a little bit of airtime, I'm usually like wrestling with it. So I, I turn towards the slide and be like, okay, I have a, I have this stream of mental energy or cognition that's part of my story. And it has a lot to say, has lots of observations, is noting things. Yeah. And then from there, I'll go towards the, the more embodied qualities of um, emotions and my, my sensual sensory mm-hmm. world. And, and, and that, progression is usually very helpful for me. I also like that you have a go-to. I think that's a kind of maturity or a kind of stress intelligence is this is where I recenter. This is where my set point is. And I don't think that's an necessarily expertise of an artist. I think anybody can have that in their own way in the business world or, Mm -hmm. or, you know, in the family system. And I think that's really great. So thanks for naming that. I do have a couple more things that I'm, Interested in, if you have the energy for it. Absolutely. Yeah? Cool, cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we were, in, we were talking about crafting days and, and the different ways of doing that and the different art practices. We've talked about your poetry. I want to talk about the violin a little bit more, and I want to talk about it at two levels. I, want to, I understand you were classically trained as a violinist, and I want to talk about the stress of, yeah. of being a, a young person <laughs> and, and, and what you had to go through and what yeah. you <laughs> okay, I, there's something there. I, I, As if it was yesterday. <laughs> yeah, the stress is so visceral. <laughs> yeah, so let's talk about that. Yeah, so I started playing violin around five and six. 
and I was kind of at a conservatory specifically for classical strings. By your own desire or somebody else's? Well, from my parents, and this is this will be an interesting uh, evolution. But yes, my my parents put me into violin. I'm something I'm so grateful for, and. Yeah, I I really took to it. I was a creative kid. I loved music. It was a very competitive environment. So like I said, it was a conservatory specifically for um, classical strings. And there was examinations and uh, concerts and competitions. And I, bless her, I'm very grateful for my violin teacher, but I have, I just have such clear memories of like crying before going to my, my violin lesson and just not wanting to go. And uh, cause I was just really fearful of my, of my teacher. And I think this is a bit of a trope, you know, like the classical piano teacher, the classical violin teacher that like scares um, or even beats like <laughs> the knuckles of their, of their students. So um, I had that's just so visceral. Is that how it went down? Was there physical? Um... Not physical, but emotionally, I just was totally, and I was a very shy kid, very, uh, not a precocious kid at all. So like in this, uh, not performing like dance or theater, but it is an art form and it is, there is a performance aspect and just being super shy and nervous child. And yeah, <laughs> It's funny, I think back to that and I wonder if could I, would I have developed in the same way if I hadn't had a teacher like that? And, and you know, I teach now, so um, but in a slightly different environment. I teach at a, at a few schools that have that don't just teach classical strings, but guitar, drums, electric bass, all kinds of instruments and students of all ages so it's a bit a little bit of a relaxed environment and there's not exact we're not necessarily teaching students for examination purposes and i i can see with within my own teaching that being firm and really advocating for discipline is so essential for the creative well-being of of your student and if it was one thing that I got from being put into music at a very young age, and I, I, I would reckon this is the same for any kid who's pursuing something seriously, whether it's martial arts or whether it's some kind of, yeah, another kind of art form or any kind of sport, and you're doing it competitively or you're doing it in a more in traditional sense, is that in order to... Um, continue that long term you have to cultivate a sense of self-direction and a sense of discipline that is priceless absolutely priceless because that's where your own sense of confidence comes from being able to basically being able to count on yourself to put in the time and the big thing with anything that you want to do um, to a level of excellence is practice and repetition and that's it that doesn't matter what it is it, it could be art or it doesn't have to be art to have that instilled in you at a young age I'm very grateful that I had that and you know potentially the firmer stricter slightly scary approach helped facilitated that um and I remember too as a kid having to practice and 
having those old, do you know, those old school kind of kitchen timers, sometimes they're an <laughs> yeah. egg or a lemon and you twist right. it. And my mom sitting it to an hour. Oh my goodness. And she's like, you can't move into, and I'm like, you know, a really young child, like an hour is forever. Like you cannot move until you finished your hour practice. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm grateful mm-hmm. for that. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> that makes sense. That makes sense that, that, that both the, the, the fear and the intensity for a young person to be overwhelmed with demand, but also the, what it gave to you at the same time. Absolutely. Um, and that fear, I, you know, I, the biggest thing that I have, I have observed in my own practice of teaching music is that the, the obstacle in the way of almost every student's ability to progress if, is their fear of making a mistake. And so, um, and that is expressed through hesitancy. So it, it's this kind of counterintuitive thing where in order to not make a mistake, a student will stop before challenging a challenging passage or they'll just lighten up the pressure on the bow or they'll just do something it, they'll they'll play in a non-committal kind of way but in doing so they're playing incorrectly because you have to commit when you play yeah. right and that sense of commitment is really difficult and so what i've noticed is that students would rather fail in their their lack of effort than fail in the effort because they wrongly intuit that by trying and failing, that reflects somehow personally on them. And so the failure, failing in just not doing it all is easier for them to bear. But really, there is no difference. In fact, it's, it's worse to fail out of cowardice than it is to fail in just going for it. And that's the psychological dichotomy that I see that I confront with almost every student and some students really struggle to overcome it. And some students with guidance or firmness, they're, they're able to just, they're able to just, you know, you know, push through. I'm wondering if there are differences in different students uh, that some need. Well, first let me say, I, I really liked the way you could read the signals of them say lightning on the bow and you could tie that to the nervousness. And I really like that you have um, developed an attitude around creation of confidence and commitment. And I think those are, like I said, those translate to lots of different territory. I'm thinking, I I love playing soccer and I'm an old guy. I'm 50 now. And I'm like out with all the old guys playing and, and I'm still learning things, but I'm like, okay, next time I go, I'm going to fully commit if I'm going to try and make yeah. a, a, a more, what I would be a more difficult move for me. Right. So I, I really appreciate that. And then I'm, um, I, I want to challenge you, but I want to ask you because you said when people are afraid to make mistakes, they're more hesitant. And then you talked about the fear or the difficulty of your own conservatory upbringing and, and the music there. Um, mm-hmm. Did, was it, am I missing something Were you, did you, when you were young, feel afraid to make mm-hmm. mistakes and did that approach of, of high demand 
um, high expectation help you get through that? Or was it challenging? Do you, you get what I'm drifting at? Yeah, absolutely. I would say, you know, and I, I think every individual is different. Everyone has a, a different temperament. I think I was fairly sensitive kid and a shy kid. But despite that, when I think back to it, that kind of um, kind of the strictness of the environment in which I learned, even a bit of the fear that that um, kind of that I felt when I was in my lessons, it, it because there was no letting up, because there was an expectation that you have to get this right, and that I'm we're not going to my teachers aren't going to change or their behavior or the way that they teach me because of any insecurities on my part that forces you to basically stand up to the plate it forces you to to overcome any kind of hesitancy and to live with your fear like you have to live you have to to be okay i'm gonna be i'm afraid right now but it's not stopping yeah Uh, it's a hard lesson to learn too but life is not going to bend at your will you want you want the teachers to take a different attitude towards you but they're not going to so you have to adapt instead of having it the other way around, instead of having the external environment adapt to your internal world, your internal world has to adapt to the external. And that's very important lesson to learn because when you go into adulthood, you realize that that's actually more true to reality than the, than vice versa. Right? <laughs> yeah, no, this is a, this is a longer conversation around culture and generations and expectations and change and, um, there's a lot in there that we could tap, but I want to go more towards um, your life. And so you took that classical skills development and you started becoming experimental because you're not playing classical violin right now. Tell me and us a little bit about the violin, how it, experimentation came about, the value of the of the, the classical training and, and maybe connection, I think, because some of the sounds may be connected to your heritage or some of the music's connected to a deeper layer um, of heritage. Basically, when I came back from Japan, I should preface. So before going to Japan, I actually was in university thinking I was going to go to law school. Um, despite my, my family having put me at, um, into music as a child, I kind of come from like a traditional immigrant family attitude where kind of appropriate life uh, paths are like lawyer, doctor, business owner, you know, these more traditional kind of uh, paths of success. I I thought I was going to go into law school. I was like, okay, that's, that might be the most interesting of the choices that I have available to me. Uh, but then I went to Japan and, and I played in some orchestras there. And that, that experience really uh, illuminated to me and revealed to me what life could really be. And um, I decided to kind of honestly, what I think is the more challenging life path. We talked about, you know, dharma and the stressors inviting specifically choosing the stressors you want to take on in your life and i thought well actually that's the challenge i want in my life i you know going through the university process and the academic process of becoming a lawyer is like 
Uh, that's actually not the stress I want to welcome into my life. I want to welcome in the stress of being uh, uh, an independent freelance artist. So <laughs> upon realizing that, I also knew that I did not want to be a classical violinist. Like I didn't want to play in orchestras and I wanted to find myself, uh, find my own expression. What What is that going to look like? And uh, so I was experimenting with a few different forms. Like I, I, there was a period where I was doing Hindustani singing um, and just trying to re-explore my instrument. And I came across Persian violin. So I'm, I'm actually half Pakistani. I'm not Persian, but um, I fell in love with Persian violin. It just it so spoke to me, and it was allowed me to complete. To approach my instrument in a completely different way because uh, Persian music is structured so differently from uh, Western classical. So even like the trajectory of a song, it's more cyclical than it is linear. And then there's a modal system and you have quarter tones and there's different tunings instead of just the concert tuning. And so it really felt like I had a new instrument that I got to play around with. And because of that, because it kind of changed the medium of the violin for me, it allowed me to be a little bit more creative and experimental and um, actually break ties a little bit with the rigidness of classical violin um, as I explored more kind of improvisation and uh, and so, yeah, that, that was a really interesting journey for me. Um, and then through that, I just, I realized I just, I wanted to write, I wanted to explore mixed media, I wanted to play around with uh, other musicians and other styles. And then I, I ended up going into session, becoming a session artist, so working with artists from all different genres, whether it's like electronic UK grime or uh, jazz or uh, R&B. Um, yeah, all kinds of stuff. Uh, Turkish music, <laughs> all kinds. <laughs> Sounds rather fulfilling. It's fulfilling. Anything is fulfilling when you realize like that, this is, this is what's constantly going to stoke your inspiration mm -hmm. for life. And for me, it's just anything to do with creativity and expression and, uh, and then as I really honed in on the virtue that I want to basically uh, manifest and make profuse in all that I do, which is this virtue of beauty, everything became a lot clearer, even in times of uncertainty, because I was always able to navigate back to, to the things that, that I really sought solace in and found meaning in, you know, so... Um, it's been a huge navigating force for me. I've loved having you on the show today. Zamina Iqbal, thank you so much for bringing <laughs> you. yourself, your thank story, you and your values <laughs> to the to How Humans Work podcast. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. All music is performed by the incredible and effervescent Chase Jackson at chasejacksonmusic.com. Please support this podcast by following us on your favorite streaming platform, sharing it with your community and friends, and by making a modest donation to our Patreon page. To learn more about this show, our guest, as well as Jeffrey and his work helping people make peace with their human nature, go to howhumanswork.us.